James Bond and the beautiful Soviet agent Anya Amasova team up to investigate missing Allied and Russian atomic submarines, following a deadly trail that leads to billionaire shipping magnate Karl Stromberg. Soon, Bond and Anya are the world's only hope as they discover a nightmarish scheme of global nuclear Armageddon, making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on 7th of July 1977, and opening in the US a week later on the 13th of July. The Spy Love Me is the 10th James Bond film and cost $14 million to make, and made $185.4 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Roger Moore, and directed by Lewis Gilbert, the vital statistics are... Romantic interludes between two consulting adults, three, Martinis one, kills 14, Bond, James Bonds, one. Back in 1977, Variety said, as always, story and plastic character are in the service of comic strip parody, an excuse to star the prop department, set designer, stunt arrangers, and the optical illusion chaps, and such commercial, commercial suppliers as the maker of the sporty Lotus car, a lethal job that also converts to an underwater craft. That was their review of the film. <laughs> so to talk about The Spy Love Me, uh, this week we have uh, Dr. Lisa Funnel, Mark Edlitz, and Ben Eslinger. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Sure. My name is Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate dean, award-winning author and media educator who specializes in gender in James Bond and other action films. My name is Mark Edlitz. I wrote two books on James Bond, The Many Lives of James Bond, and The Lost Adventures of James Bond, as well as a book called How to Be a Superhero, which was a collection of interviews with actors who have played superheroes over the last six decades. My name is Ben Esslinger. I am a uh, film and video editor, and I also run a podcast called Central Intelligence Cinema, which discusses uh, various spy films. Awesome. Well, welcome, guys. Um, so we kick off with our first category, which is the one with... Um, what is the motif you could hang your hat on for this film? Um, whether if that's what you'd put on the poster, or if you closed your eyes, what's the thing you hear or see when you think about The Spy Love Me? How would you describe this film to a casual moviegoer? The Spy Love Me is the one with, and we'll give the honors to Ben as he's new. Oh, goodness. Thank you. Um, it's the one with the Union Jack parachute. It's the one with the, hmm. with the pre-title sequence. Um, just it's the stunt is so iconic. Um, and it can't be understated how ridiculously close to becoming tragic and not even caught on film for that matter. So that's right. Um, yeah. Only one camera caught the action after all their preparation. It's quite amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and as we were talking about before recording nowadays, it'd be in the trailer, wouldn't it? And, yeah. um, <laughs> we wouldn't be surprised. Mark, would you like to go next? I would. It's the one with the underwater car. That was just bananas and fun, and uh, who wouldn't want one? <laughs> who? Uh, I, 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 anybody who's owned a Lotus may regret <laughs> the choice <laughs> uh, <laughs> the frequent servicing bills and repairs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, Lisa, what would you say? So they've already taken two really good ones. I agree with both. Yep. Um, I would say the one with Scary Jaws. I mean, when we think about a hench person who really identifies with the world of Bond, who's sort of notable, it's Jaws. Jaws is this figure with the metal mouth. Jaws is somebody who bites his opponents and kills them with a single chomp. Jaws cannot be killed. Superhuman, formidable opponent to Bond. And in this film, he is the scary version of Jaws. Even Bond looks afraid of him when they're on the train. So I would say this is the one with the scary Jaws. It's a good shout. So um, in your opinion, then, Lisa, did, did Moonraker kind of um, undo a lot of the threat from Jaws? Oh, absolutely. And and here's the thing. I do like watching them back to back. I do like how they took his character and humanized him, right? Where he has emotions and confusion. And he even has that aha moment when he realizes, wait a second, I'm not part of this perfect, you know, human mm -hmm. race that's that's procreating in space. He realizes I might not be one of those people. I'm just here on the muscle. And so I really like what they did. And so I, I, I like the version with the scary jaws, and then I like the different version that we get in Moonraker, where there's there's that humanity that's given. Uh, okay, so this is the meat of the podcast. We're talking about the Bond cocktail. Um, several people over the years have tried to break the Bond formula down into categories. These could be teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond, action locations, dialogue, or style. 
Um, would you like to each pick one of these ingredients that you feel is somehow unique or particular to this film and why? And it could be a positive or a negative. I'll do one uh, to, 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 to expand on that thought about the, cre- on the ski jump. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the way the ski jump came together is emblematic of the way these Bond films are written. So it, legend has it that the idea came because Michael G. Wilson saw an advertisement in Playboy of a man jumping off a cliff, you know, while skiing. He saw that, gave it to Broccoli, and so they knew that they had this action beat. Guy needs to jump off a a cliff. Right. So now you have to work backwards. You want to end the scene with that. Then you have to determine who should be jumping. Okay, it's, it's Bond, wanted to be heroic. Now, why is he jumping? What are the circumstances that made that happen? So I think the way that the, that the general public would think a scene like that would come together is that the screenwriter is sitting alone in their room, comes up with this spectacular <laughs> idea, and then they find a way to make that happen. But it, it's the exact opposite. You all go, mm-hmm. it's, it's backwards. And Christopher Wood um, wrote a book about the, the writing of his two Bond films, and he had an idea where the where Bond would land, and it would continue where he would land on the right. water, and he would do a little water skiing, and then he'd go to safety. But uh, they correctly said no, l- less is more. Uh, right. And, and uh, John Glenn said that he thinks that that. Jump encompasses everything that, that the series stands for. Uh, mm. uh, uh, he told me he, it's the style, the panache, patriotism, humor, and stunts. And I thought it was interesting that he put the patriotism in that top five right. of what the series stands for. Because as an American, I think that initially went over my head, the importance of having the British uh, flag on it. Yeah. So that's my mm-hmm. sh- Echoed not so successfully in Dino of the Day, right? With um, <laughs> Gustav Graves. <clears throat> there's a little bit of a Twitter debate this week about that, actually. That there's a shot in Dino of the Day where Bond's plane lands and then you see the parachute jump. And it's like if you just took that one shot out for a second, you'd think it was Bond jumping out the plane with a parachute. Um, right. And, and part of that idea was to have Gustav Graves as a Bond like figure. And that was yeah. the reason to introduce him like that. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I, I don't think it was quite, I don't think audiences compared Bond to Gustav Graves. Right. Here we are. We're talking about Dino of the Day. All right. Um, sorry, that's my, that's my bad. We always do that on this podcast. Uh, are you putting it under the teaser category then? Yes, let's. This not? As an yeah. iconic, uh, yes. particularly unique entry in this film. Okay. Ben, what uh, ingredient would you like to throw in? Well, for me, um, I actually uh, kind of struggled with whether this is considered style or if it's Bond <laughs> itself. Um, and I know that style okay. has the, the style ingredient has been sort of <laughs> abused, <laughs> abused a bit. Um, but I feel like the spy who loved me is the movie that most successfully carries off the quintessential Roger Moore, James Bond style. It's yes. kind of the formula, much the way Goldfinger is seen as the formula setting bond for the Connery era. This is the, this is the formula for Roger Moore. It's the first time that um, the mo- it's the first Bond movie that actually caters to Roger Moore and what mm-hmm. his strength what his strengths are in the role. Yep. Um, and it hits the perfect balance to it. They finally hit the perfect balance between humor and seriousness um, without pushing it too far in either direction. Um, there's a couple, you know, awfully campy moments, but there's never. There's never a slide whistle. <laughs> and, <laughs> and on the other side of things, um, you know, we never see Roger Moore do something, you know, like show cruelty to women that, you know, you just, it feels really uncomfortable, <laughs> well, <laughs> to see anybody do that, but <laughs> especially Roger Moore. Um, right. So um, I think they just, they nailed 
the the Roger Moore style of James Bond movie. Um, I think that because this is such a big movie too, you know, you, it's just everything is so big in this movie. The sets and and um, they just throw the kitchen sink at this thing, and I think that really works with with Roger Moore. Like to have something so fantastical, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like they took a second. Uh, shot at you only live twice and did it and did it it better um and it works better with roger moore in that role i think to a degree Mm -hmm. maybe maybe because he's enjoying himself more i don't know um or maybe he's just you know he's just good at at handling himself in that in that bigger uh stage and then on top of everything else i mean Roger just looks so good in the movie. He's yeah. he's mm-hmm. he's at his peak. I'm, you know, he hits all the notes correctly. Um, yep. As far as you know, when it's time to be serious, he hits the serious notes in a really believable way. You know, I think about that the conversation they have at the bar. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they and they you know reference Lazenby and and all that, and you know he. And even though it's sort of a retcon, it's, well, I guess it's not really a retcon. It's just sort of a reference. Um, it doesn't really affect plot or anything. So, <laughs> but the fact that, you know, he plays that really well. And likewise on the, on the comedic side, you know, when they're uh, driving through the desert or, right. you know, <laughs> you know, and Anya's trying to drive away from Jaws and, and he's just sort of smirking at her and, you know, he just hits all the right notes. It's interesting you mentioned the, the serious scene for me, Ben, is um, when they're in the hotel room and um, she clocks that, you know, his cigarette lighter came from the place that trip, uh, mm-hmm. her boyfriend was going. Mm-hmm. And that's always, to me, like one of Roger's standout scenes of his whole tenure is in, mm-hmm. in Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and oh, we were doing some writing about the movie a, f- a few years ago, and we, we came to find that that was like one of the earliest scenes that Barbara Back actually had to do some acting in. And she had a boyfriend at the time coaching her through that scene because she was so awful. Oh wow! <laughs> in that film, so you've got Roger with an inexperienced actress really struggling and about to get kicked off the picture, basically, um, and he still delivers it. You know, yeah. despite all that, you know, that uncertainty and chaos in that scene, and he still delivers an awesome performance. So that, like, that learning that enhanced that for me. Yeah, that- no, I really agree with you because I think when people speak about Roger. Uh, more they talk about the humor, the wit, and the charm. But I always think that that doesn't work all the way through a movie. You have you have to have scenes where you're playing the danger, where you have Bond scared, where you have Bond out of his element, uh, out of his depth, where he's in, in a situation where he might not get out of, and right. where he sets the stakes of the movie by, he's not joking his way out of that scene. The right. next thing he's when you cut in the second the, the moment that <laughs> ends, you know they're on that, that, that helicopter thing and right. he's, he's winking at her or whatever. I might be, I might have that might not be a direct cut, but oh, it is. It's a direct cut to a big shit faced grin. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> but during that scene, he's so he's he's he he's very good and uh, and as well as well that scene in the bar uh, where you you know you you know stop talking about my wife. He he says in effect. And what's interesting about that scene where they mention uh, Tracy uh, is that it's usually use a reference like that for the first actor's movie. Yeah, to 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 Mm -hmm. connect to issue. There, it's not right. It's already Moore's third film. It's just a moment that it's a character moment. I, I have a theory about that though. I, I, I honestly think that Spy Love Me is Roger's second era, start of his second era, yep. because you've got yep. Live and Let Die in the Memory of the Golden Gun by Guy Hamilton, who was trying to wedge him into Connery tropes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then Saltzman departs the series, Hamilton departs as director, Broccoli's in charge, he brings in Lewis Gilbert back from You Only Live Twice. And it, to me, the Spy Love Me is a reboot of Roger's tenure. So I, or I mentally, I treat his first two movies is a separate era to the Spider-Man onwards because he's playing basically a different character. 
And a you can ver- see a different version of the character, I should say. Yeah. yeah, and you can tell that he's and I'm so happy we're having this conversation. You can tell he's so comfortable, grounded, it's authentic. I, I rewatched this a couple of days ago and I just sat there, I was thinking to myself, Roger Moore is so good in this film. He doesn't have a co-star that's really supporting him um, acting-wise. The villain is not necessarily supporting him. He's he's right. a blink and you miss it. One of the hench people kind of blink and you miss it. This is really Roger Moore carrying this film through the humor, his delivery of lines, the way that he looks. You know, he's, he's shifting through emotions. He looks terrified when Jaws is pinning him up. And, and you sit there and you realize this is probably the first time Bond has really been scared. I got such a range of emotions that when, and I maybe I misheard the quote that you gave at the beginning when they were talking about plastic character. And I'm like, you better yeah. not be referring to, to Roger Moore because that man gave me levels. He gave me layers and I believed him. He looked and felt so authentic like Bond that this was, I think you're right, James, this is the new era of Bond. And this is Roger Moore's entry and introduction into the world of Bond. Yeah, and that's why I think they put that little tag in about Tracy. It's like yeah. we're reestablishing his character, you know, but tying him back to the timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the movies I, going forward all all look far more like this one, yes, than, yeah. than backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like you go into Octopussy and you've got the same Bond being played, yeah. and you go, you know, right. but you can't go backwards. With it. Um, some. Um, I think Calvin says this. Uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but basically, like <laughs> that, Craig delivered a slightly different Bond performance in every one of his movies. He played Bond <laughs> slightly differently, and I think Roger's got two gears. He's got the Guy Hamilton gear in the first two movies, where they're trying to do the Connery stuff, and then he's got Roger being Roger gear mm-hmm. through the subsequent five. Um, and I think he plays Bond really consistently across yep. the next five movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true of any other actor. I think that have been in it, they've all messed with their portrayal of the character a little bit as they've gone on. But Roger was just like, from this moment when they hit gold, it's like, let's just do that again. Yep. Could you describe Lewis Gilbert's style for these Bond movies? Because I get Guy Hamilton and I get John Glenn, and I'm not really sure how to put my thumb on what Bond is. I see see Lewis Gilbert movies as like, when you're visiting like one of those model villages, <laughs> like, the scale of things is off, right? Yeah. So you either feel tiny and there's this big thing, or you feel huge and there's a little thing. And I think <laughs> the, the scale of Lewis Gilbert's world is is just it's yeah. weird, and I love it. I absolutely love it that everything is off. Um, things are really bigger or smaller, or they're the way off kilter. Um, and I think. A lot of that obviously is Ken Adam too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and his and his influence on it. But so between the two of them, they create these worlds which are like hyper real. Yeah, and you'd love to visit them. You'd love to go on vacation there, right? Um, mm-hmm. And well, it's a little bit got- it's a little bit Thunderbirdsy, you know, mm-hmm. like in its uh, technology. It, it just the tech is always a little bit ahead. Um, so I love it, but I, I I I'd love to be able to put that concisely, Mark, into like. A description of it but and then you've got the uh like the models too that derek meddings does mm. that are so detailed and it just right. adds to that it adds to that whole world that way i guess hence my affinity to thunderbirds um because yeah. meddings invented all of the thunderbirds um and he did all the model work in that show so yeah uh so we had teaser and bond uh lisa what do you want to do so I don't n- remember your categories, but I have an idea. So hopefully I'm not totally choosing my own adventure here. And I know it's we've talked style. about <laughs> style. There we go. And I know we talk about Ken Adam a lot. So I'm going to love him, love the ship, love the destruction of the ship. Just going to throw it out there, still fawning over that. I actually wanted to draw my attention to shot composition and the work of the cinematographer Claude Renoir and his team. Mm. And it, maybe it's the the film student and professor in me, but I watched this film and I was taken back with the cinematography, with the way that the shots looked, and of course the angles that were there. And I can give you two examples of, of what I mean. There's a great shot in scene when Bond is trying to find 
whomever he's looking for, the person who gets bitten in the neck during during that scene. Um, and he, you can see him coming into the courtyard and you see the city behind him. And it's this great shot where Bond looks actually quite small in the shot. You've yep. got all of the space above him. You can see the city beyond him. And you sort of get this impression that he's walking to a, into a space that's not familiar. And if, then if you look at the next scene when he's talking to the woman, again, you get these high angle shots. And a high angle is ba- basically you start high and look low. High angle shots uh, looking down at Bond or their level shots where you can see a lot of space above Bond. And I kept thinking Bond is exposed. Bond is in a position. He's not in the strategic position. He's not uh, searching for cover. He might not know that there's a sniper and you see this extreme close-up of, of the hench person and, and, and his eyes, and then you see a close-up of the gun, and we're getting the sense that there's danger and there's risk. And literally through shot composition and, of course, through editing, we're, we're being sent these messages that Bond is in the open, and we have these questions about how is he going to get out of this situation. And so there's tension that's put in literally by the way that the scenes are being shot. It has nothing little to do with uh, the way Roger Moore and the other actors are performing, and it's how the scenes are constructed together. And there's a, a comparable scene, and I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast, when that man is killed um, during that performance. You've got the music playing, you have mm-hmm. that person dancing and twirling their head, and every time I see that, I think about how much I need my chiropractor, and mm-hmm. hoping that the, the dancers had chiropractic care as, as part of their um, performance in this in this movie. But the way, again, that it's shot and, of course, edited together is so fantastic. You see this this high-angle shot of the man being terrified that Jaws is looking at him. You see him looking into the camera. And then you get this low-angle shot from the side of Jaws's mouth. So there, you have these close shots, these close-up shots of these two men. You've got this music going on in the background. And then you have this inner cut of that person twirling their head. And it creates this frenetic energy. We are fearful. And in today's day and age, we would see the bite. We would see blood gushing. You know, it would be a huge spectacle. But in this shot, it's not necessary. We're afraid. And it's so impactful because we don't actually see it. Instead, what comes through is the absolute fear and the different power dynamics between these two men in this particular space. And with the noise going on, no one would even hear him if he yelled. Mm. And so watching this particular film, I don't know if I've I've ever really considered it in other Bond films. It's just shot incredibly well and edited in a very skillful way that that contributes to my thoughts and my feelings. It's not just set design. It's about how that set and how the actors are being mobilized to send this overarching message about different power dynamics as well as risk and safety in a variety of environments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or not. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the, the little overused um, cliches show don't tell in filmmaking. Yeah. And I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. There was, there was nothing in the performance. There's nothing in the script, nothing in the, it was just purely the, the, the shots they chose and the angles they chose to convey those things. And they did it so well. They did it well. Like when you talk about plastic, this is not a plastic movie. It was so well executed. I'm just sitting there in awe watching it the other night. Like this is, I just kept saying, this is so good. I said it to my dog. This is so good (laughs) over and over and over again. Uh, Two things came to mind while you you were talking. Uh, One, I was, I have Spy Who Loved Me on in the background. uh, And it's the scene where Bond and Jaws and Triple X are fighting in, 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 in the ruins. And yeah. it's all the fight is long shots. It's not, it's not the sort of close up shots that you see in a fight. It's all these lo- long shots, uh, which, which is unusual. And, I, and because you, as you were talking, you, you were given visual uh, proof. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking of is, is that cross cutting is more a effective in the spy who loved me than it is in something like quantum of solace mm-hmm. where you know the, you, you cut back and forth between the you know the, the race right mm-hmm. in spy who loved me it's building 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 between the, the the murder and the dancers yeah and in, in in quantum it sort of lets the air out of the scene a little bit mm. Yeah, I was going to say I hadn't mirrored those two scenes together, but I think you're absolutely right. That they tried to do the same kind of thing, but just didn't do it well. It feels much more intentional in *The Spy Who Loved Me*, 
mm-hmm. um, especially that scene, you know, with the with the dancers and everything as the intercutting just gets increasingly quick and they ramp up the volume on the music all the sort of crescendo to to this yep. guy's death versus you know in quantum in quantum it's more of a constructional it's Counter. sort of the way they just constructed the entire scene that way um and they just hit you over the head with mm. uh you know the accelerated pace and and they just keep going with that that frantic edit style and I love that ruin scene. I know that that uh, this is just a different reading of it as well. I remember when I was watching it, um, the way that they emphasized, you know, the expansive nature of these ruins. And what I loved about it is how clever Jaws looks through that entire scene, again, based on positioning and angles. You know, when the two of them are um, Bond and, and Amasafa are like, you know, bumping into each other and, you know, trying to figure it out of where they're going. And then there's that 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 shot where you look up. It's a low angle shot, low looking high. And you see Jaws just walking across the top. And I'm sitting there thinking, he's smart. He's incredibly intelligent. He's pushing them through. This is now, and to me, I liken it to a maze that you've put a little, you've put rats or mice in, right? Like he's playing and toying with them. And that shows a different, it helps to give a different level of of meaning and interpretation and reading to Jaws that he's not just sort of the brawn that mm. is there, right? That there are levels, that there there is intelligence going in, right? Just as we saw a few scenes before, he's, he's listening to them in the back of the truck, right? Yes. He's shown as being incredibly intelligent and skillful in what he's doing. And the camera work is really supporting that, especially in the scene. Yeah. Can't argue with that. everything is Uh, so tall in that scene it's just it's just just with that using that tall angle and the fact that jaws is seven feet tall you know it's everything is tall (laughs) i I think i don't know if it's in the documentary or one of the books but they they talk about the reason why they did a lot of those kind of shots and long shots was because the stunt double wasn't seven feet so they had to kind of hide the fact that the stunt double wasn't his his same stature so if they shoot up angles mm-hmm. and long distance then nobody would notice and to this day i don't think anybody noticed nope i nope. haven't and i won't <laughs> and the effect is that it makes them look incredibly daunting and smart right. and all these right. other things right. that they probably didn't realize they were doing i'd say yeah. i refuse to notice but now i'm gonna look yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've been ruining the films for people for years don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, all right, next category is underappreciated element. Uh, this film is very well appreciated, so this would be a tricky one for you guys. So what thing, big or very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch The Spy Love Me? I'll go first because I could be short because um, I think we kind of covered it. I, I did want to talk about the, the, the overall action and editing and narrative thrust of this movie, which is just two hours and and five minutes or so right and there's you know the, the the ski jump at the beginning there's the the helicopter chase there's three different fist fights there's the jaws battle there's the train battle there's the underwater lotus there's you know a couple of jaws fights there's the 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 the, the assault on on stromberg's lair and right. there's escape at the end all with all within two hours and five minutes and that opening sequence with the submarine that's that's like two and a half. That's it's only yeah. two and a half minutes. It uses a lot of real estate relatively, right? Really quickly. Yeah, and and the big the tanker is the the tanker battle, and um, yeah, there's you're absolutely right. It's it's, it's jam packed. It's interesting you mentioned editing too. On that, there's no transitions in this movie. It just oh. cuts to the next scene, mm. and I think that efficiency sort of helps you know, kind of push things that way as well. Lessons could be learned, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ben, what would you like to throw in for underappreciated element? Well, um, I think probably the fact that this movie works so well, despite the mountain of problems that plagued the production, Um, Mm. just, just sort of, you know, reading into some of the stuff that went on during this movie, the fact that the opening stunt, you know, they, it was, what was it, like 10 days or something like that, that, you know, they waited around and tried to find a 15-minute yeah. opening. And then even when he did 
do it. Um, it sounded like he sort of didn't hit his mark exactly. And so only one camera caught it. So you've got that right off the bat and that's 250,000 pounds. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, the fact that working in Egypt at that time was like a huge mess. Uh, it sounded like they, you know, mm. just calling back to, to England for anything took time. There was this well-known story about how they, um, had ordered in food from a refrigerated truck and in the middle of the night, the refrigeration turned off. And so all the food was ruined, which led to the, the very classic story about Hubby, you know, making spaghetti for the entire crew. Uh, cause he went into town just to like right. <laughs> find, find some stuff to make that the fact that in Jamaica, there was an armed robbery at the production office. Meanwhile, you've got legal trouble from McClory. Uh, Roger Moore got shingles. Yeah. Like it's just one thing after another and Seven yet, different scripts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 14, 14 different writers. And right. yet, you know, they still came up with arguably Roger Moore's best bond movie. They yeah. probably and the, might. The, and the Lotus, the whole Lotus thing, which we mentioned at the start is one of the most iconic elements accidental. Yeah. That, that was just a fortuitous thing that Lotus wanted the car in the films. So they parked it outside and the, the story's legend and all the rest of it. And Ken Adams was like, well, I can make that a submarine. And you know, it's like <laughs> so many things could have been very different that wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have come off. Yeah. Isn't it amazing, though, how things just seem to come together against mm -hmm. all of these odds? It's just an idea here and a, and a point there and, and, and a situation here, and yet it comes together to give us something that's incredibly iconic that wasn't necessarily there on paper. It wasn't necessarily storyboarded. It mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily there, you know, from the outset of the film. And that, that really shows us just the power of creativity and the power of collaboration. And of course, the power of necessity when you're in the moment and you need something, maybe you have those genius ideas that, that strike and there's a sense of creativity. I know we keep talking about bond films being formulaic, but there's so much creativity that is required in order to make these films. I mean, we're well into the second decade, right? In order to keep making them interesting, innovative, um, and, and keep pushing that envelope. And so I just, I love hearing stories about all the problems. And then when you see the final product, you say, huh, never would have mm. known because we see the other side of things. Mm. Yeah. It's such a testament to the people working on it too. The fact that, yep. you know, no matter what, they're just, just make it. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite bits of trivia about the oopsies was they forgot to get the shot of Roger hiding behind the rock. So they had to use a cardboard cutout. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd never know it if no. unless somebody, until somebody points and ruins it for you and points it out. Yeah. Thanks James. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, they, need, they need to replicate those and put them on the uh, 007 star. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, Lisa, underappreciated element. Okay, I have two honorable mentions and then a real one. All right. Uh, so, I'll, I'll, yeah, I was thinking a lot. So, honorable mention number one, the mobile camera in that pre-credit sequence. I mean, mm. it's one thing to shoot people skiing, and it's another thing to be following somebody uh, skiing while holding a camera. So, honorable mention to the way that it was shot. Uh, honorable mention to the acting of the supporting cast, especially all of the crew members who were captured. Um, it was their fight sequences, their deaths, you know, the stunt doubles. There was just a lot of emotion and energy that made it believable. And of course, then it makes Roger Moore uh, Bond saving them all uh, even that more notable. But for me, the thing that I think always gets underappreciated has to do with Q. So basically, at the end of the day, this is a film about comparables, right? You have M and his comparable number or 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 administrative position with Gogol, which by the way, Gogol is very likable in this film. Yeah. Uh, then you have Bond and Agent Triple X, right? You have our best man and our best agent and all that play on those words. And yet, if you look at that scene, maybe they're in Egypt, not really sure where they are. Um, you have yeah, these comparable... Yeah, in Pinewood, you have these sort of these these mirror images, these binaries or comparables, and yet there's only one Q. There isn't a Soviet comparable inventor, technologist, scientist galore. Instead, they all look in and rely on Q 
to be providing everybody with techno technological information. And when you think about it, if this is supposed to be comparable um, mm. um, institutions, it really sends the message that, yeah, sure, you know, we're, this is an unlikely partnership. But at the end of the day, you know, the UK and Britain, they're superior because they have Q. Q is the the defining factor that's going to tip things um, in, in in the scales of Bond and Triple X, right? Because mm. he, he he souped up that car, and it's only Q who is there as this figure of ingenuity and technology pushing it forward. So I think that for me yeah. is the most underappreciated element. Um, even though I've got some honorable mentions, and even though all of your points are pretty fantastic as well. Q. Uh- so much so that the Soviets had to send Triplex to steal the plans for the yes. Lotus. Right? Yes, they can't make their own. She had to steal them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was a little dubious that they gave him a, a big tour of of the uh, of Q's facility, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's, all the, here's all the things coming at you next year. <laughs> <laughs> But that shows a level, again, that's supposed to show, I guess, a level of trust, right? That we're now working together, this unprecedented partnership. Who would have guessed? Although, let me tell you, if you wanted to make it, who would have guessed? That, okay, this is okay. This is supposed to be a positive podcast. But like Barbara Bach and that that accent, I just wish she didn't use it. And she would have just used her regular voice mm-hmm. and accent. And she could have said, nobody, nobody would think that I was Soviet. Nobody would think I was Russian. And literally, it would be one line. Right. And I think it would have then allowed her to ease into that role and perform rather than being so hung up on making sure that she had an accent. And I think that possibly for me would have really just settled um, a lot of those components, but that's a whole other critique that you probably didn't want from me. <laughs> well, uh, no, I think that's absolutely right because I hadn't, you put, I, yeah. I'm, okay. So in the beginning of the film, they try and fake the audience out by calling triple X and you know, Michael Billington, one time bond contender is in bed with her, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's a Russian agent speaks perfect english right, right. Yes. so they, they could that could have been the you know they've already proved demonstrated that that's a thing russian agents speak perfect english without an accent mm-hmm. therefore you don't need to do the whole nope thing they could yeah. be a sleeper agent couple. I mean, we had a whole television right. series called The Americans, right? Like it could have great. easily just been incorporated <laughs> in and then it would have it would have worked. And then it would have been this idea of like nobody really thinks that we'd be working together, even though we are, because the accents don't match up. Perfect, brilliant, you know. Mm. I'm I'm in it. And I think the accent really did hinder a performance. Yeah. Um, so much so that in interviews around the time of the film, she kept the accent on because she it was like if she switched it off she wouldn't get it back on again yeah oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> when she phoned her mum in the evening whether she kept it on or not but um <laughs> in a complete non sequitur is james gandolfini made a, a a film between at seasons of the sopranos and he kept his tony soprano accent mm-hmm. for the same reason you just said he said, right. if, if I do an entire film, I'm going to forget it. Yeah. I, I don't buy it. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, was slipping into trivia. So maybe we should switch gears into trivia now. Um, Gosh. The, these have all been found. But um, is there uh, one that you find particularly interesting? Uh, fact or tidbit? Well, I always like uh, things that have to do with like Roger stories. Because all of mm. Roger's all of Roger's stories are the best. So um I just really like the tidbit about um when they shot the fight between Bond and Jaws in the uh Karnak Temple complex in Egypt, they had to have an official from the Egyptian government on set at all times. So when it came around to doing the the little ad lib joke about about mm. uh Egyptian builders, they had to dub that in later. Um, but Roger Moore actually noted that his Egyptian friends, when they went and saw the movie in Cairo, everyone was roaring with laughter when that line hit. <laughs> and and that guy got fired. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Maybaum blames, uh, I, I think this is accurate. Richard Maybaum uh, sort of blames Roger Moore for that line and also says that it's a bad line. Uh, but because it's the, the joke is inaccurate. 
because right. you know the pyramids have been around forever. Right. Yeah. So and they think he, it's he, ironic. He, so he thought it was a bad lie. Uh, well, I think the audience decides, right? Yeah, yeah. and everyone laughs. Yeah, uh, Mark, what trivia have you got for us? Uh, two. One, uh, this this the spy lovely spy who loved me is the most faithful book. Excuse me, most faithful film to the entire Ian Fleming uh, catalog. Butchered <laughs> um, <laughs> that a little bit. Uh, and the other one, I saw this film uh, when I was roughly ten, and there is that scene where B- Bond is, is, is trying to find out where someone is. There's a there's a marksman. They yeah. And they shoot, and it, and there's this weird physicality where it looks like Bond is using her as a shield, as a human shield to protect himself. Hmm. And and it always bothered me, um, even at that age. I it's it's it it something seemed wrong. Yeah, and um, I finally looked at the script, and it said that. Um, uh, the gun is fired. Bond holding Felicia flings her and himself onto the floor besides the divan, D-I-V-A-N, like a sofa. He he turns her over. She is dead. A red mm. stain spreading across the back of her dress. All mm. I say is it doesn't appear that was the intention. Right. We've debated this on the, I think we did on the watch along. And the, mm. the line that confused me is when she goes, no, right? It's like, is she saying, mm-hmm. no, don't shoot me? Or is it, no, don't shoot Bond because he's just kissed me. And I now, you know, it's like, yeah, he's not a bad guy. Um, um, you know, yeah. The only PS to that I could add is that if you go to, did you, if you go to the novelization, uh, Christopher, Christopher Wood, who wrote the novelization as well right. as the screenplay or, uh, he he embraces the the ambiguity mm. where he uses a line that I don't have it in front of me where some, some something something to the effect of using her as an inadvertent shield. But, um, <laughs> but my, my, my my guess is that that that's not what the filmmakers were trying to do. That right. they probably had this the, the day's work and realized we have five more setups. Yeah, you have them jump behind the bed, and right. then you do right. It's two more you know, shots. Like, yeah. Just, you just, you know, let's just get through it. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's Lewis Gilbert's decision, right? Yeah. As to right. the internet. Yeah, but also in the editing, right? It's all in the editing because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you could re-edit that sequence to make it look like Bond didn't know what was happening, or you could re-edit it to make it look like he was callous. Um, mm. Yes, just with the same or, footage. Or the placement of the sound effect, maybe even right. Hmm. It's always bugged me too, Mark. That scene—it yeah. seems so out of place in the film. So, in terms of my trivia, I'm not the biggest person when it comes to trivia. So, but uh, seeing as how I'm on the Jaws kick today, you know, mm. redeeming his character and everything, um, I believe a piece of trivia is that they meant to kill Jaws, at least in an earlier version. Um, maybe die, dying some way, thrown into a pit or something like that. Um, but uh, I think it was Broccoli realized that this was a really interesting character, innovative character, had a lot of popular appeal. And so they decided to keep him. And I think that that was a really good decision. And I'm hoping that's a piece of trivia, not just me making stuff up. Uh, but I distinctly recall hearing that at one point. And I think it's a very interesting thing for, you know, you expect that people in the world of Bond are going to die, right? Everybody dies, but bond and to see that there is a villain who endures and not the arch villain right not not blowfeld in that way but somebody else and maybe this could have been that notion of like a, a comparable blowfeld character but in a hench person mode but i find it interesting that they chose not to go down that route i'm very happy that they did because i do enjoy moonraker as a film so so yeah it's an interesting tidbit um where you were you're going in a direction and then something pulls you away from it. And that happens all the time, by the way, in, in television series, for instance, where a character is only scripted for a short period of time and then you realize you have a charismatic actor or if it's being released 
um, um, uh, uh, through broadcast and you're, you know, working a couple episodes back, um, you can see what the popular reaction is to that particular actor and character, and then you write them a bigger role. So it's not uncommon for something to happen, but I find it interesting that in a series like James Bond, where everyone's kind of going to die, that they decided to take that turn. I just looked it up, I just looked it up, Lisa. And um, the script says, the shooting script says, um, another click of the switch, the magnet is switched off and Jaws plunges down into the water. At once, the shark swirls across the tank and attacks. As Jaws starts to fight desperately, Bond dashes away. Uh-huh. And then it goes to Carter looking through the periscope, blah, 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 blah. There is no shot of Jaws swimming away. In the yeah, original we see him. Script. We see him pop up, don't we? After that, right? Yeah, his head yeah. above water. Mm-hmm. That was not in the shooting script. Mm-hmm. And there I, you I, go. And I think it's a good choice to bring him back. Not not necessarily because they had a, a plan in mind, which they might have. But every time there is a a Jaws is the, sort of the energizer bunny throughout this. They sort of use him as a as a cartoon Bugs Bunny Roadrunner character. And every time you think he's dead. They cut to right. one more shot of him getting up and not <laughs> dusting himself off. <laughs> and so they, you see that three or four times through the movie. So if so, when you do see him pop out of the water at the very end, it, it seems appropriate and, and fitting. Right, right. And and then it also made me makes me think that I don't I you would you would think that Jinx would have come back for Jinx from um, Spectre. Would have you? You sort of. I sort of expected him to come back for another Bond movie. He could have come back with a neck brace, right, Matt? I mean, <laughs> I feel like he could. Have, he would have been fine. Yeah, he's a big guy in the in the jaws. Yeah. You know. But yeah. he didn't like it was shocking when he didn't, especially given the popularity of the actor. Of the actor, yeah, right, yeah. and and they're they're. I think, I think you may have found why he didn't come back. Well, <laughs> maybe, yeah, but even even in the <laughs> film itself. Right. Like I just expected there to be this this element of bouncing back. And I felt like he just exited the movie just like Monica Bellucci way too soon, especially for all the promotion mm. that they did for the film. Um, I think that that was my most shocking part about Spectre was like, I'm like, where'd they go? Like you died too soon. All the interesting people are gone. What are we left with? Right. Another hour. Right, right. Like, there's a lot of movie left, but I don't think they really stuck to that that typical Bond formula of 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 Jaws right. coming back. And I think it would have been a more interesting movie. Just throwing that out there. Well, it also feels like yeah. an unresolved element in that in that Bond got through that fight on the train with Jinx, but through luck and circumstance more than his own ability. Yeah, that they needed yeah. a rematch to find out who really is the right, right. And I loved his gun in that movie with the double barrel. It's awesome, and you, you see it in like two shots, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. All righty, final verdict. Um, I think this might be an easy one. Um, yeah. There are no bad Bond films, but there are some that we watch more than others. So. Um, <laughs> I always have to put that qualifier in there because yes. apparently we're negative. Yes. So <laughs> I disagree with that qualifier. I'm just saying there are a couple ones that are bad. <laughs> okay, uh, don't at me on social media. Okay. It's, it's probably good my co-host Jason isn't here because he'd probably <laughs> say the same thing. <laughs> um, so final verdict: If you had to divide the Bond series up into top, middle, and bottom tiers that you watch the most or enjoy the most or least, um. The spy love me. Does it finish top, middle, or bottom? Ladies first. <laughs> I, I can do that. It, it's in it's in the top. Like it's in the top third for me. I thought that again for some of the issues that it has. I thought that Roger Moore was just brilliant. In it. I love the set design and the cinematography. I think everything works together the way that it should, and it's got all the emotions that I want. I'm laughing. I'm scared. I'm entertained. There's this action. It's suspenseful. There's this scary hench person that's freaking me out and that keeps coming back. There's some great action sequences with the helicopter and the car and all that stuff going on. It's got technology, level, space, elements, resources. I love it. So it's in it's in the top for me. All right. Mark, you want to go? Uh, meh. No, I, I think it's I think it's top tier bond. Uh, I, I, I think for all the reasons we've been talking about, Rogers, Roger, Sir Roger Moore is great in it, and uh, it, it moves fast. 
Awesome. Ben, do you want to be yeah. the voice of dissent? No, no, no. <laughs> it's uh no, it's definitely top tier for me. Um it's literally my it's battling from Russia with love for number two right now on my oh. on my per, on my oh. personal list. So um I absolutely love this movie, both for the fact that it is just a great, great movie and for all the reasons I sort of specified earlier about it sort of hitting that perfect balance for Roger Moore isms um, and just the big grand scale of everything. Just everything works in this movie. The only thing that I might want to change, I wasn't super crazy about the, uh, the score, but that's, Mm. I mean, but it did enough to, to not make me, you know, (laughs) it didn't, that didn't detract it enough to, to make it drop on my, on my list at all. Um, I just, for all, you know, all the reasons I stated, I, I just think it's absolutely top tier, even if it is sort of a sentimental favorite as well. Cause it's the very first bond movie I ever saw as a kid. So uh, that helps. <laughs> yes. Yes. That explains a lot of weird choices in bond fandom, doesn't it? The, uh, the first yes, one you, you get to see. find the film. Yeah. And you're, mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. So three thumbs up. Um, can't remember if I had that before in the series. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Lisa, Ben, and Mark. And if you're listening to this contemporaneously, the Spy Love Me is back in the UK cinemas this week. And uh, go see it on the big screen. Um, I think, especially in the States, if you went to the Roger Moore kind of memorial screenings, it was the Spy Love Me and Furious only as a double bill. So quite a few people have probably seen this on the big screen. But if you haven't, check it out. And watch out for that cardboard cutout in Egypt. Um, <laughs> You'll never unsee it. Uh, No. So thanks, Lisa, Ben, and Mark. And we'll see you next time. Bye.